I'm going to go ahead and pray for myself also, but I thank you, Ed, for praying for me. Father, we uh, just come before you this morning. Uh, I pray that your word does its work in me and does its work in your people. We pray for your Holy Spirit to uh, do his work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our message this morning will come from the book of Hebrews, specifically uh, chapter 12 and verse 2. But before we start, uh, just a little background. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, it was written to Jewish Christians who were undergoing persecution. Uh, It was written to encourage them to continue holding fast to their confession concerning Christ. And so we read in Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Although our text for today is Hebrews 12.2, I want to look at some of the surrounding passages uh, so we can get a little better context. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You'll notice in verse 1 run with endurance. Verse 2 Jesus endured the cross. Verse 3 that he endured from sinners such hostility. And then in verse 4, it talks about that struggle against sin. Uh, so we see all this. The, uh, the writer's trying to bring out the idea that it is a struggle. But hold on, because we have a great example before us. And that's what we're going to look at today. I'm very well aware that I can say, I can't, I can say concerning the sufferings of Jesus this morning only what would be fit. Uh, be a drop in the bucket, so to speak. Uh, None of us knows the half of the agony which he endured. None of us could ever fully comprehend the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Uh, Before we can ever get a good grasp of the love of Jesus, we must understand his previous glory and its height of majesty and his incarnation, which we celebrate today even, Uh, upon this earth in all its depth of shame. For Christ to even come to this earth was a great condescension on his part. Who can measure the extent between that place that he occupied of majesty to how low he stooped when he came to earth to redeem our souls? It is impossible to comprehend how low he descended. It is of infinite order of magnitude. For God to take on flesh 
was something that boggles the mind. But to be a man of sorrows was far more. To bleed and suffer and die as he did, that is too much to take in. To die a death of shame and a death of desertion, this is a lower depth of condescending love which the most inspired minds will utterly fail to fathom. So let's look more closely at our text this morning, Hebrews 12.2. The main emphasis in this verse lies in the opening clause, looking to Jesus. All the other clauses describe Jesus in respect to his work, endurance, and position. Notice that the writer introduces the name Jesus so the readers will concentrate on his earthly life. As contestants engaged in running the race, we have no time to look around. We must keep our eyes focused on Jesus and must do so without distraction. The writer of Hebrews does not place the name Jesus among those of the heroes of faith. He gives him special recognition, for he calls him the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he whom God perfected through suffering perfects his brothers and sisters who have placed their trust in him. As originator and perfecter of our faith, Jesus has laid its foundation in our hearts and in time brings faith to completion. He can do this because he is able. And he will do this because he is our Redeemer. The next two verses, Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so we look to Jesus. And although Hebrews 11 included a long list of many worthy examples, Jesus is the ultimate uh, of our focus. In the light of the foot race metaphor, the idea here might be that Jesus, who pioneered the course of the faith, awaits believers at the finish line. Jesus goes before us as originator of our faith and the leader whose matchless example we are to follow always. The examples of faith in chapter 11 are to be followed only so far as they followed Christ. Just as the Apostle Paul would say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Looking to Jesus means to look away from all else and to fix one's gaze upon. It is no casual glance, but a firmly fixed gaze. We are to run this race with no eyes for anyone or anything except Jesus. It is he toward whom we run. There must be no divided attention. Jesus trod the way of faith first and brought it to completion. He originated his people's faith and will bring it to its perfection. 
We can only run the race as we look to Jesus and have our eyes locked onto him. He is our focus, our inspiration, and our example. We must guard against seeing Jesus as only an example. He was and is so much more. But he also remains the ultimate example of Christian endurance. So he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the author and finisher. He is the leader and forerunner. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He goes before us and leads us as our matchless example where we are to follow always. In this, he is again distinguished from all those examples of faith in Hebrews 11. He is going before us in faith, or excuse me, his going before us in faith has made faith possible for us. His perfecting faith in his own person and example has made faith effectual for us. Because Jesus fulfilled the ideal of faith in his life and as a vicarious offering and an example, he is the object of our faith. He himself ran the race. He laid aside every weight, every tie of family and friends, every restraining hand he brushed aside that he might resolutely walk with God. He set his face against the popular sin of unbelief and walked on in patient perseverance, trusting the Father to work everything out for him. He set the example. We are to look to Jesus because he can do what no one else can. The heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 can inspire us, but Jesus empowers us moment by moment, day by day. If we learn to look to him, we find strength imparted to us. Again, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through, through Christ who strengthens me. Let's look at the joy that was set before him. Uh, it's kind of a, some interesting words used in this, in this verse. Uh, how do we interpret the word joy in this context? Because joy isn't something I would think about if the next word is enduring the cross. Well, there are several interpretations here, but I believe the best one is that because of the joy awaiting Jesus after his death, he willingly endured the cross. To obtain the joy God planned for him, Jesus obediently suffered the agony of death. God destined the path of suffering for Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53 in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But afterward we see that he is filled with joy. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the joy that was set before him seems to point to the future. It relates to Jesus' exaltation when he was glorified after his death on the cross. 
the joy was looking forward, uh, the joy that Jesus was looking forward to, was also the joy of delivering and redeeming and gathering God's elect people together. It was the joy in knowing his work on the cross was sufficient to bring about repentance and remission of sins. It was the, uh, the joy of knowing each one of his own, being adopted into the family of God and obtaining the inheritance guaranteed to us by the promised Holy Spirit. To the praise of his glory, these things Jesus could count as joy. It was a joy that was set before him. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In the end, Jesus' joy was in fully obeying the will of the Father. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was on a mission from his birth, what we celebrate today. And so he endured the cross. In his epistle, the writer seldom speaks directly about the earthly life of Jesus. In fact, this is the only time he mentions the word cross. That term, together with the verb endured, mirrors the entire passion narrative of Jesus' trial and death. Jesus stood alone during his trial before the high priest and before Pontius Pilate. Jesus endured the agony of Gethsemane alone, and he alone bore the wrath of God at Calvary. In his suffering, Jesus visibly demonstrated his faith in God. In obedience, he sustained the anguish of death on the cross. This next portion here talks about shame, and I want to spend a fair amount of time on this concept of shame and and go through the scriptures here and see if we can gain gain a better understanding to hopefully help us understand what Jesus went through. The first place we encounter the idea of shame in the scriptures is in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they began to experience shame. In Genesis 3, verses 7 through 10, we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God didn't have to ask that because he knew where they were, but he's trying to draw the confession out of him. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Interesting, if we look at the last verse of Genesis 2, 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Something drastic happened. Something cataclysmic happened at the fall. 
in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve uh, were naked but felt no shame. They were not embarrassed or threatened. They anticipated no rejection or mockery or judgment from the one to whom they were exposed. Shame was unknown before the fall. In fact, shame is a feature of the fall. Shame causes us to go into hiding. It is a very natural response. The child who disobeys his parents hides the evidence of his disobedience and hopes his parents don't find out. Likewise, a criminal runs and hides from the police, hoping not to get caught. Perhaps there is nothing which men so much detest as shame. The greater the position or status of a person determines the amount of shame that person will feel. We find that death itself has often been preferable in the minds of men to shame. And even the most wicked and callous-hearted have dreaded the shame and contempt of their fellow man, far more than any tortures to which they could have been exposed. Let's look at a couple biblical examples here. We find Abimelech, a man who murdered his own brothers without remorse. Even he was overcome by intense shame. In Judges 9, verses 52 through 54, we read, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. Shame was too much for him. He would much rather meet his own quick demise than carrying the shame of being slain by a woman. It was also the case with Saul, a man who was not ashamed of breaking his oath and of hunting down his own son-in-law. Even he fell upon his own sword rather than it be said of him that he fell by the Philistines. And so we read in 1 Samuel 31, verses 3 and 4, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. It is well known that criminals and outlaws have often had a greater fear of public contempt than of anything else. Nothing can so break down the human spirit as to be subject continually to contempt from one's fellows. Shame is a terrible thing to endure, and many of the strongest natures have been subdued when they have been subjected to it. We usually tend to think of shame in a negative sense, but it can be a completely appropriate and useful response. In Daniel 9, we see Daniel confessing the sins of his countrymen exiled in Babylon as he recalls their sinful ways. Daniel 9, uh, verses 5 through 8. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. 
We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And so Daniel uses the concept of shame to draw these people back to God. And so it's, it has a positive uh, use in this case. But now I want to talk about the shaming of Jesus. Shame is a feature of fallen humanity, as we've seen. But it's something that Jesus experienced also. Although he never internalized people's contempt by becoming ashamed, he was certainly shamed. He was deeply shamed. Profoundly shamed. From the very beginning of displaying his humanity, Christ began his journey of shame. Even in the meditation we read this morning in Matthew 1, I noticed the line that uh, Joseph, being a righteous man, was not wanting to disgrace her. That's the word shame. He did not want to openly shame her. Jesus condescended to the lowliest of estates, from majesty to pauper, from the one who created the world to the one subjecting himself to the limitations of his own creation, from the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power to the one who made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus entering into our world and even experience the shame from the very beginning. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here I want to emphasize that Christ didn't become anything less by way of, of his incarnation. He wasn't any less divine, for he was still fully human and fully God. In fact, it is this very truth which makes all that Christ underwent such a wondrous mystery. Consider some of what Christ experienced. Jesus was spat on. His head and face were struck. His beard was plucked. His clothes were stripped off. He was verbally mocked and insulted. Jesus also associated with shameful people. A woman with an issue of blood, tax collectors, prostitutes, unclean lepers, Samaritans and Gentiles. These people were a threat to Jesus' social standing. The Jewish leaders were always quick to point out that Jesus should not mix with these kinds of people, 
lest he be defiled along with them. But the greatest moment of Christ's humiliation and shame was on the cross. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they certainly perfected it. It was designed to be the most arduous, humiliating, painful, and exhausting method of execution. Today, we would certainly call it cruel and unusual punishment. No Roman citizen would ever experience crucifixion. It was relegated only to Roman subjects or slaves and only to those who had committed a terrible crime or insurgency against the Roman Empire. It was done publicly to warn onlookers lest anyone should consider defying Rome. In our day, the cross is not considered in a shameful way. It has been the crest of monarchs and the banner of conquerors. To some, it is an object of adoration. The finest engravings, the most wonderful paintings have been dedicated to this subject. Some of us might be wearing a pendant with a cross on it, and rightfully so, for the cross has taken on new meaning ever since our Lord gave up his life in his atoning sacrifice for our sake. So it becomes difficult for us in our day to fully understand the shame of the cross. But the Jews knew it. The Romans knew it. And Christ knew what a frightful thing, what a shameful thing it was to be put to death by crucifixion. That dishonor Jesus was willing to bear. And the strength of his confidence in God his love for those whom the Father had given him and the depth of his humiliation was shown in the determination with which he went forward to such a death. What did the writer of Hebrews mean by despising the shame? If one despises or scorns a thing, one normally has nothing to do with it. But despising the shame means rather that Jesus thought so little of the pain and shame involved that he did not bother to avoid it. He endured it. The cross was meant to bring shame on those who were executed in this way. But Jesus despised that and did his Father's will by submitting to it. The Jews who demanded Jesus' crucifixion wanted to place him under the curse of God. They were well aware what God had said in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you, or inheritance. And so Jesus was treated as a vile criminal. The Jews wanted Jesus to experience the utmost shame. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus came to reverse the curse of the fall. He took the curse upon himself to set his people free. We read in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
when our Lord Jesus suffered in this way, it was not on his own account, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Understand that Jesus took upon himself our sin, my sin. And being found bearing that sin, he had to be treated as sin should be treated. Now of all the things that ever existed, sin is the most shameful thing that can be. It deserves to be scourged. It deserves to be spit on. It deserves to be crucified. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that we are to mortify the flesh and its sinful ways. And because our Lord had taken upon himself our sin, therefore he must be put to shame. Therefore he must be scourged. If you want to see what God thinks of sin, and you look no further than his only son, enduring the full fury and wrath of God exacted upon him, that which we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses. I love to meditate on it. For our sake, me, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, I, might become the righteousness of God. In God's sight, sin is a shameful, horrible, loathsome, abominable thing. And when Jesus takes our sin upon himself, he must be forsaken and given up to scorn and shame. But we must always remember who it was that was treated this way. If you, if uh, for if you and I, being sinners, were scourged and smitten and despised, there would be no wonder to it. We would be receiving that which we deserved. But he who took our sin was God in the flesh, before whom angels bow with reverent awe. And yet, seeing the sin which was upon him, he was made subject to the most intense degree of shame, seeing that Jesus stood in our place. It was the Father that spared not his own Son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. What depths of degradation and shame our Lord experienced. And yet for us, what weight what heights of an inexpressible joy we experience because of what he accomplished on our behalf. If Christ had been taken by force, that would be one thing, had it even been possible. But that he should stand there subjecting his will to the Father's will and that he should be willingly be treated with derision, this is grace indeed. The Son of God was willingly made a curse for you and me. And at his own choosing was made subject to shame on our account. Brothers and sisters, I now delight to tell you that the tables were quickly turned. After enduring the cross 
after despising the shame, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. With a few strokes of his pen, the writer provides an account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The crowning point, of course, is Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of God. That place of honor belongs to him and will be his for all eternity. Throughout this letter, the writer repeatedly quotes and alludes to Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so we'll notice a few verses here in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8, 1. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then our verse this morning, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Is seated is in the perfect tense, and it points to a permanent result. The work of atonement ended. Christ is at God's right hand and is seated on his throne forevermore. He remains seated and he remains reigning. But I want us to look also how the tables are turned on the enemies of God. Psalm 68.1 God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Psalm 68, 21. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. And what is our lot, brothers and sisters? those of us who trust in the Lord and his promises to us. We hear the psalmist rightfully crying out for vindication and exoneration. Psalms 31, verses 14 through 17. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant, Save me in your steadfast love. O oh Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Again, Psalms 35, verses 22 through 26. You have seen, O oh Lord, be not silent. O oh Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. And so God's promises are for us 
through our faith in Christ. 1 Peter 2.6 For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just as an aside, I want to mention that uh, in both that first Peter passage and then this Romans passage we just read, uh, uh, that put to shame may also be translated as confounded I mention this because shortly we will be singing a hymn where the word uh, confounded is used. Uh, It's the same idea as put to shame, so remember to look for it. So we see that Jesus accomplished his task. He assumed his place in heaven and now assures the believer of divine assistance in the race marked out for him. Let every thought of him on the throne remind us of the path that brought him there and carries us also. Let every thought of him on that path of trial lift our hearts in loving, steady gaze to the throne where he now reigns to communicate to us in unbroken continuity the power of his glorified life and his complete and eternal salvation purchased for us. We look to Jesus, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, which we celebrate today. He is enthroned as our king, and yet he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. We look to Jesus, and Jesus alone. We look to Jesus and live. We shall never be confounded. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your son. We thank you for not even sparing your own son, but giving him to us. Father, we can't even imagine all that transpired from the heights of majesty to the depths of death, even death on the cross all for our sake, all for our redemption. Thank you that Jesus is the final and ultimate atoning sacrifice and that he now is enthroned where he belongs. Oh Lord, minister to our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.